and welcome back to Global Citizen, a podcast from Glimpse from the Globe, a foreign affairs daily publication out of the University of Southern California. In this episode, we are here to introduce you, we are here to introduce you to another outstanding international relations professor here in our first series, The Professor Profiles. I'm Taya Heisel, and I am joined by Glimpse podcast director and my co-host, Cameron Melillo. Cameron, how are you doing today? Hi, Taya. It's great once again to be back talking international relations in the Zoom studio. Uh, as of recording this, our first episode just came out on Spotify and Apple Music and anywhere you can listen to podcasts yesterday. So I'm absolutely on top of the moon. Uh, we're hoping to keep this positive momentum going, uh, which is exactly why we're recording this podcast with our great guest today. And I'm very, very excited to talk about international law and all things international relations. It's definitely an exciting time for Global Citizen. Um, I'm also very excited to talk to our guest today. Our guest is Professor Wayne Sandholtz. Professor Sandholtz started his college career by getting his BA as well as PhD in International Relations at UC Berkeley. He has extensive teaching experience at premier Southern California institutions, including USC, where he has served as a professor since 2012, as well as serving as Director of International Relations between 2016 and 2018. Professor Sandholz has written numerous books and written works on international norms, international humanitarian law, and the EU's role in international law, just to name a few of the many subjects he's written about. Uh, Professor Sandholz, it's an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be with you to be covering numerous major areas with Professor Sandholz, including his 30 plus years of teaching international relations, his time spent in Paris as a researcher, the Rome Statute, and Ecocide, just to name a few. However, as all of our listeners have surely caught on by now, the first question we ask our guests is a little different from the rest. Now, Professor Sandholz, given that you're one of the most prominent knowledgeable international legal experts in Southern California and a vital member of the USC POI, our faculty, it's only right that we ask, what is your prediction for the upcoming USC football season? Well, I can't claim to be an expert on, on Pac-12 football, but I do follow it. I have to expect that USC will finish top of the Southern Division. They have the talent. If they can put it all together, I, I think they're going to be tough to beat. Yeah, that's uh, that's what we're hoping for. Uh, I know there's been a lot of uh, talk about maybe joining the Big Ten, so that'll be interesting to follow uh, during the season as well. Now, we always like to really begin our podcast by learning a little bit of background about your career. So what were your initial motivations in pursuing a career in international relations? And did you always want to pursue a career in the IR field? Yeah, I, I think I got fascinated by the world and and how diverse and, and multifaceted and, and dynamic the world is and how many different ways of, of living there are out there different from our own. And, and so, yeah, I, I think from a, a barely, very early stage that it was my, my dream or my objective to, to somehow be involved in a career that would uh, let me see and study the, the whole wide world. And uh, another follow-up we wanted to ask you is that you've been involved in research in academia since you've graduated with your PhD. Uh, I know a lot of people in, that are coming up now might uh, consider working in a multinational organization. Did you ever consider going down that path in IR or were you always sure of working in academia? I was pretty sure I wanted to, to go into academia uh, and probably mainly because of the, the freedom it allows you that is, as an academic, I don't really have a boss. I have people above me, 
but but they don't tell me what to do exactly. I I I research and write on whatever interests me, and I have quite a bit of flexibility as to when I do what I need to do for my job, as long as I get the work done. So in that sense, well, that was very appealing to me from, from the very beginning. Yeah, I think that, that freedom uh, of being a professor, that sounds really awesome, especially if what you're interested in is, you know, exploring all these different facets of IR, you really get to do that with your research. Um, and, you know, in between getting your master's and your PhD from Berkeley, you also spend some time as a researcher for the French Institute of International Relations um, in Paris. How did you enjoy that experience? And what was the biggest difference you noticed about working in Europe, maybe versus working in the US? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that was a terrific experience. Uh, I, I did it as part of my research for my doctoral dissertation. I needed to, to be over in Europe to, to talk to government officials and, and actually corporate officials because I, my topic was high technology cooperation in, in Europe. And so I needed to talk to companies that were engaged in and advanced uh, technological research on semiconductors and aerospace and, uh, and those kinds of sectors. So it was really important that I get over there and the French Institute of International Relations graciously uh, invited me to have a, a home base there. And it was just a, a hugely interesting and, and productive time. You asked what the main differences were working over in Europe as opposed to the United States. And, and I suppose that given that I was working in this area of international relations and foreign policy, and I was at, a, I was at an institute of international relations, that the differences were not huge. Um, people spoke French, that was different. <laughs> but, uh, but in terms of the, the kinds of projects that we were all working on and, and our interests and our vocabulary even, though, those were all pretty similar. So I guess, I guess it was a, a taste of globalization in, in this particular niche, right? And I feel like you know, the, the differences between working in Europe and the US have already, you know, have only become more similar as globalization has taken a greater effect. And that might be comforting for some students who are concerned about going and studying abroad because uh, they're worried that the research they're gonna do is gonna be fundamentally different from the stuff they're doing in the US. But I think that your perspective shows that a lot of it is similar and you can still kind of apply what you learn in the US to a foreign field. So we wanna kind of shift gears and ask you, you know, a few policy related questions. So given your expertise is international law, I think it's only right to just start our discussion with the Rome Statute. For the listeners who are unaware or unsure, the Rome Statute is the International Criminals Court's founding treaty. It grants them jurisdiction over four major crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression. In recent years, there's been talk of adding a fifth crime known as ecocide, which can simply be defined as unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment caused by those acts. Professor Sandholz, should ecocide be added as a fifth crime governed by the International Criminal Court and why or why not? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. Before I, before I think about whether in principle ecocide should be added to the agenda of the International Criminal Court, we should probably think about the practicality of adding it. 
remember because uh, like you said, the, the court is established and empowered by an international treaty, uh, any kind of, of significant change to the court's mandate or jurisdiction would have to be accomplished through a, a revision of that treaty. And that entails getting every single country to sign the, it would be some kind of, you know, protocol or addition to the treaty, getting every single country to sign that and ratify it. And that's a huge task. The, the, the negotiations that led up to the Rome Statute were so complicated and, and, and difficult um, to even think about revisiting the treaty to add a crime of ecocide is, I don't think any country would be very excited about trying to, to start that. Now, should there be or some kind of international criminal accountability or international accountability of some form for crimes against the, for, for wanton, willful environmental destruction. And, uh, and uh, probably yes. On the other hand, there are existing mechanisms that, that, could, that could, do, could accomplish that. So even though the Rome Statute doesn't, doesn't identify ecocide as one of the core crimes, it is possible under, I think anyway, under the Rome Statute to prosecute certain kinds of environmental destruction under the categories of war crimes or crimes against humanity. So if, if there are, are large scale environment, if there's large scale environmental destruction carried out as part of, of fighting a war, that could, be, that could be prosecuted as a war crime because there are protections for civilians and for civilian res for, for natural resources and, 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 and societies. So, I, I think it could be done under some circumstances with existing mechanisms. So speaking of, you know, the long process and the hard process of actually signing the treaty in general at the beginning and also, you know, amending the, the treaty, um, we want to talk about a little bit how the United States itself isn't an official um, signatory to the Rome Statute, and they're not uh, a part of the ICC. Um, how do you think this lack of U.S. involvement has affected the U.S.'s relationship with the ICC? And do you think the U.S. will ever sign on, um, or should they sign on? Yeah, some of those questions are easier to answer than others. Should the United States sign on? Definitely yes, in my view. Uh, will it? That's a much tougher question. But but to to start with your with with your first question about how has the relationship between the the United States and the ICC evolved, and has the failure of the United States to ratify the treaty had some effects on on the court? And and the answer is definitely yes. Clearly, when you have the the world's uh, leading power outside of of the International Criminal Court as an institution, it's going to affect how it operates for sure. Now, that, given that, the, the actual practical relationship between the United States and the ICC ha has shifted, has evolved gradually over time. So even under President George W. Bush, the United States already was allowing 
cases to be referred to the ICC through the, the Security Council. It didn't veto the, the reference of Darfur, for example, to, to the ICC. And then under President Obama, the United States gradually started to more to be more forthcoming in terms of cooperating with the ICC. Now, under the previous president, prior to, to the current one, that changed a lot. The, the, the former administration uh, exp expressed some very harsh criticisms of the ICC and threatened the ICC and ICC officials and essentially barred them from traveling to the US to, to carry out their duties of investigation. And, and that was extremely unfortunate and short-sighted in my view. Uh, now under President Biden, that's being reversed and, and maybe the United States can, can rebuild a more uh, cooperative relationship with the ICC, even if we don't in the, in the near future at least uh, end up joining it. Yeah, and it's good to hear that over time, we've developed a more close relationship with ICC, and we can only hope in the next few decades that will be further strengthened. So in a much less hypothetical situation, ICC prosecutor Fatou Bensunda, I'm sorry if I said your name wrong, I apologize. But anyway, earlier this year, you made a statement that not only does the ICC have jurisdiction over Palestine, but also that the ICC would be inv investigating Israel for crimes back to 2014. In a case like this, how long do things take before the court will come to a conclusion? And how do you see the investigation playing out? Yeah, those are tough ones. Those are tough questions. The, as I'm sure you've, you've observed, the, the ICC process uh, can take years. And that's true of, of most international courts um, with very few exceptions. It's a, it's a huge and very difficult task, especially if, if states are not willing to cooperate in, in terms of, of giving the ICC investigators access to evidence, access to witnesses. And then of course, if there, if, if there is an indictment, states have to cooperate by handing over the, the accused for trial. So all of this, can take years and years and think also think about that the ICC is located um, in the Netherlands and the investigations are happening in other continents for the most part. That's another complication. So, so the process can, can take years and years, unfortunately, that's, that's just the reality. Um, in, the, in the specific case that you mentioned, the, the investigations into potential war crimes committed in conflicts between um, Israel and, and the Palestinians, that's very hard to foresee. I, I don't think very many people doubt that there were violations of the laws of war that occurred uh, in the various conflicts between Israel and, and Palestinians, um, probably on both sides probably on a larger scale committed by Israel. But of course, that's what would have to be, be verified and proven with evidence uh, in any kind of, you know, it, it, if there is a, a full-fledged investigation and prosecution. Now, of course, it's political dynamite. And 
and I just I I just would be totally unable to predict how how this could play out. Uh, very few of the previous ICC cases have been have been as politically sensitive as as this one as this one would be. So just to ask you a little follow up to that question, I know um, this decision to have the ICC um, include Palestine in their jurisdiction, that was a really controversial decision um, that was made. Do you think that that signals a shift in the ICC claiming jurisdiction in areas? I know, um, especially because Israel, correct me if I'm wrong, Israel also is not a party to the Rome statute. Um, so this was a very controversial decision. Do you think that's going to change how the ICC might act in the future with other cases that involve countries who might not be party to the Rome statute? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it was a pretty bold move by the office of the prosecutor. And, and also, as we've already discussed, quite controversial. Uh, because as you meant, as you said, Israel is not a member of, of the ICC, just like the United States. And the, in principle, the ICC has jurisdiction only over states that have ratified the treaty. Um, on the other hand, it does have jurisdiction over acts that occur in in territories that are under its jurisdiction, whatever the nationality of the perpetrators. So this is also ambiguous and Palestine is not a state or at least not widely recognized as, as a state. Although it, it may, you know, the, over the last years there has been some movement toward that. It still isn't, it isn't re recognized as a state and therefore has is not a party to the treaty, and and that this is this is uh, kind of new ground that the uh, that the prosecutor has has uh, waited you know walked into, and it will just have to see how it plays out. It'll be politically extremely delicate, um, and I I just would not I can't make any kind of prediction as to how it will play out in the end. I don't want to push you to make more predictions. I know this is a this is a very it's a very complicated issue. It's a very controversial issue. But just one last question on this topic. Um, I know because of these jurisdictional issues and because this was such a bold move, um, do you think that this could open a door for the ICC to prosecute the U.S. if they commit crimes in countries that are party to the Rome Statute? Yeah, that that's a, a little bit easier to answer in the sense that the ICC already has jurisdiction to prosecute uh, American officials or American personnel who commit crimes under the Rome statute in the territory of a country that is a party to, to the Rome statute. So that, that I think is, is more, at least in legal terms, more straightforward. In political terms, it would also be dynamite. So you you know, it was it was really the prosecutor's opening of an investigation into potential war crimes committed by Americans in Afghanistan that that triggered the the Trump administration's very harsh and 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 some would say 
intemperate response uh, to, to the ICC. So that would be, again, a, a hugely tricky and, and politically difficult move for the ICC to accomplish. And we could spend, uh, you know, the next hour or two talking about the ICC because it's just, you know, there's so much to talk about when it comes to the ICC scope and its effect over other nations. But the scope of international law is so big that we want to kind of turn away for it and uh, ask you, you know, a few more questions on the other topics we have. So we're going to turn away from the ICC and talk about an article you wrote for the Human Rights Quarterly called United States Military Assistance in Human Rights. In here, you discuss how U.S. military aid does not serve as leverage for countries who commit human rights abuses, despite the International Security Assistance and Arms Export Control Act. In light of this research, how can the U.S. leverage countries who commit these abuses to get them to stop? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Human rights has been a part, a, gui a guiding principle of American foreign policy for decades. Now, different administrations place greater or lesser emphasis on human rights in their foreign policies. The previous administration, sadly, really virtually disregarded human rights in American foreign policy. And I think that's a, a, a grave mistake. The, the United States, if, if the United States is to continue to provide leadership as I think it should in the world, that, that leadership has to be based on fundamental principles that, that we're all familiar with from our own Declaration of Independence and our own constitution and from the human rights treaties that the United States has ratified. So this is nothing new, but uh, what, I, what I'm getting to is an answer to your question, namely that the United States should be using all of the foreign policy tools at its disposal to encourage better respect for human rights in, in our partner countries, you know, whether we're close allies or, or whether we have more antagonistic relationships. And uh, military assistance can be one lever for that. You know, if you, as US law requires that we attach some human rights conditions and when countries use American made military equipment to violate human rights, the United States has to respond to that and, and cut off assistance or suspend assistance and, and uh, you know, speak out. We could, and we, we could do the same thing with other forms of, of economic assistance to various countries. We can do the same thing uh, with using our voice in international institutions that are set up to uh, promote respect for human rights. That's a, that's a great answer. And so the next question I have for you, this one, this one's a little bit more of a fun and creative one. So as many of my family, friends, and listeners now know, I'm a sucker for a good hypothet hypothetical. So you wanted to give Professor Sandholtz one. So you get a knock on your door one day, you open it up, and it's president of the United Nations General Assembly, Volkan Bakshir. Mr. Bakshir says, Professor Sandholtz, I've read all your books, virtually attended many of your lectures, and based on your particular set of skills and expertise, I want to grant you complete autonomous control when it comes to setting international norms. Now, I don't think the process would be this simple uh, given you know, the, the UN's uh, scope, but in this hypothetical, we're gonna make it so. So you have the ability to set three entirely new international norms. So what three new norms would you enact and why? 
I like that question. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there, there are three areas that, that I would focus on. One would be climate change. I would, if I could decree uh, an international norm, I, one of them would be that all countries are committed to uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions to, you know, you could pick the year as the baseline year um, by 2030 or 2035 or, or whatever the, the scientists might tell us would be the appropriate date. So, and make that a, a, a hard international commitment. But along with that, I would make it a norm that the wealthier countries would be obligated to provide assistance to the less developed countries to, to make the transition towards uh, a reduced carbon economy. So with technological assistance, and financial assistance to make the conversion to renewable sources of energy, uh, I think that would have to be part of that, that norm as well. Uh, a second one that I, I would think about would, would have to do probably with cybersecurity. We pretty clearly need better, stronger international norms uh, regulating what happens across borders in terms of hacking and cyber attacks and ransomware and all of those things that we've been seeing in the news uh, in a very high profile way in recent months. So I would, I would create a rule that, um, that cyber attacks like that emanating from the territory of a country once proven uh, are a very serious breach of a state's independence, uh, interference in its internal affairs, and in, in some cases uh, really could amount to the use of force against a country. So I, I, I would want to see something done along those lines as well. I don't know if that counts as three or two, but, but those are the ones I would start with. Those two are a great start, and I hope you know. I hope tomorrow you get that knock on your door, and uh, and you get to you know make your decrees. Um, I think it would be excellent to have better you know norms and regulations around climate change and cybersecurity and everything you talked about. Um, so to get to you know back to the real world a little bit, though that could be the real world one day. You never know. Um, you talk about you you offer the European Union as a good example of how we can observe the norms of international how they change and the consequences of those changes. Now, given that you're an expert on the EU's impact on international laws, well as a professor, we wanted to kind of pull from both of those and see if you could grade the EU from A to F in respecting and promoting current international norms, laws, and organizations that the EU is a party to, what grade would you give the EU and why? <laughs> I would probably give the EU a, an, an A minus certainly nothing lower than a B plus. The, the EU tends to be a, a quite responsible global citizen in, in terms of respect for international law. Now, of course, no, no country in the world is, is perfect or, you know, 100% compliant with, with international law. That, that's just not the real world, but, but relative or compared to, to other uh, political entities that are out there, 
the EU does, a, I, I, I think, a very respectable job. It's, there's a very deeply rooted rule of law culture in, in the European Union and in its, in its member states. And I would also say that, that in general, European uh, jurists and legal thinkers, judges, lawyers, and governments take international law more seriously than probably most, most of their American counterparts do. That, that is that they regard international law really as part of their law. And, and so I, I think in general, and with of course, you know, some major exceptions, they are, uh, they are pretty good global citizens when it comes to implementing international law. Thank you for that. Great. I know we, we love to talk about good global citizens here on the Global Citizen podcast. Um, <laughs> but just a little bit of a follow up there, you know, when you're going to write that report card and you put the B plus slash A minus on there, um, what would you tell the EU would be areas to improve on? What would be your criticisms? Yeah, good question. I, I hesitate to, I would hesitate to be uh, to put it as 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 criticism, especially since our our own country, the United States, tends to, I, well, would earn a lower grade. Let's put it that way, when it comes to uh, compliance with international legal obligations. But the one area that does stand out, I think, would be how the EU has handled international migration, especially from the Middle East and Northern Africa and, and, and well, in all of Africa, um, it's, it's, been, it's been in some respects pretty shameful how the, how the EU has, has uh, tried to exclude and turn back and um, immigrants in some quite, I would say in, in some instances, at least in some quite inhumane ways. I, I don't think very many people would disagree with that. So I, I would really urge or hope that the EU could, could improve its performance with respect to uh, refugees and asylum. Now, again, it's hard for us to be too critical because the United States uh, is it maybe even just as bad uh, in terms of our treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. So it's a tough one. Yeah, and I think it really offers perspective that even when countries are doing a lot right, like the EU, there are still major areas where, you know, they've, I guess, failed in a sense, but it really speaks to, you know, how far they are ahead of us considering we have the same problems as them in terms of migration and asylum seeking, and then many more when it comes to respecting international laws. So one last question we have when it comes to policy is we couldn't ask, we couldn't miss the opportunity to ask a question about the effects of COVID. So Professor Sandholz, how do you think COVID-19 and the eventual post-pandemic recovery will impact international human rights norms, especially considering the rise of nationalism in general during the pandemic? Great question. Uh, I, I, would, I would answer along a, a couple of lines. Let's think about it in terms of economic inequality, which has just been 
which COVID has really thrown a spotlight on, right? That is the huge disparities in how countries and communities are able to respond to, to the pandemic in terms of their, 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 their resources, their access to vaccines to take maybe the most obvious example. But not just that, uh, the ability to provide a, a, a safety net for, for citizens, for their citizens, their gross disparities, access to, to basic medical care, even access to oxygen, which was an issue here in the United States, but an even more, an even more alarming uh, problem in, in some other countries that essentially ran out of ox medical oxygen. So I, I think, uh, economic inequities have been pushed up into greater visibility. And I, I guess I, I can only say, I would hope that we've learned something from the, the coronavirus pandemic uh, in terms of the absolute necessity for bringing up the less advantaged the economically and, and uh, closing the wealth and income gaps that exist within the United States, obviously, but, but also at a, on a larger scale in the world. So uh, economic inequality, I think, is it, it, it will be difficult. There are huge challenges. But at least I think COVID-19 has shined the light on the need for serious action to to close the the wealth and income gaps that exist in the world. Second area is how closely related the pandemic is to climate change, and there's no escaping it. The, that climate change is exacerbating health problems, including the pandemic, and and I think governments will will have to be taking that into account. And then finally, in terms of human rights, and this is probably an area that worries me a lot, I'm, I'm not sure that there will be progress. Uh, a lot of countries have, in a way, taken advantage of the pandemic to institute more authoritarian kinds of controls over society. And I, to be absolutely clear, I do not put the United States in this category. We did have an authoritarian slide under the previous administration, no question about that. But what I'm talking about has to do more with controls over, over civil society organizations, controls over the press and press freedoms that a lot of countries have, have used the excuse of the coronavirus pandemic to exercise emergence, so-called emergency powers that end up giving them uh, more repressive control over, over civil society, NGOs, the press, the free press, the judicial system, even taking away powers from legislatures and, and really undermining democracy in, in some pretty fundamental ways. And that um, it's much, it's harder to see how that will be, a, I think, a real struggle and, and a real battle to undo some of that, that backsliding in terms of democratic freedoms uh, and human rights. 
I really do hope to your first two points, I really do hope that this that the pandemic is kind of a wake up call when it comes to economic inequality and um, climate change. But I know how intertwined economic inequality can be with human rights as well. And I, I am worried about the how economic inequality and human rights when they're tied together, how this backsliding in, in, in human rights norms is going to affect that. Um, but I guess we'll see what happens. Um, it's going to be a hard journey to to recover from that and definitely harder in some places than others. Um, but to you know, ask you a few questions away from the policy side and just talking about um, your career as, as an academic. Um, so we've mentioned previously that you've been in academia for about 30 years, right? Um, so what do you think is the biggest difference that you've noticed when it comes to IR students now compared to when you first started teaching IR students in the early 90s? Great question. In some ways, the differences are very small in, in terms of, of students who are, are so highly motivated and passionate about uh, being engaged in the wider world and understanding that global problems are American problems too. I, I think if, any, if anything, maybe today's students are even more aware of those connections because uh, in those years that I've been teaching, globalization has gone farther. The, the, the types of glo global challenges that have a huge impact in the United States have become even more visible and, and more urgent, especially climate change, I, I think. And, and though, though, because the, I think young people today are are even more tuned in to just how pressing the challenges are and, and how urgent it is to, to, to act and to, to bring about the changes in policy and law that, that will uh, address these, these gigantic challenges. So I think maybe there's a greater sense of urgency uh, among, among IR students today, at least those who are who are really tuned in to to the field and and really you know paying attention to to what's going on in the world. Yeah, and we know that you know we we here at Glimpse we're very passionate about the world and especially you know major world issues like climate change. So it's good to see people getting more involved. Uh, you know, encouraging you know, more research into whatever, whatever international relations area they want. We hope that continues. So we know you're, you got to leave soon. So we just got two more quick questions, uh, kind of drawing off that response. What is the biggest misconception you've noticed students have about international law and international norms? Great question. I, I, I would say the, the misconception that most IR students have coming into international law is the same one that, that most people generally have about international law was, which is that in some, some sense, international law isn't real law. Uh, and that it's, you know, it's, it, nobody takes it seriously and, and it doesn't really do anything in the world. And, and that really is a misconception and, and one that I, I try to overcome uh, with, with my students, but obviously one that we need to overcome in the public, the broader public in general, of course. So uh, that would be probably, probably be the number one. 
heard a lot of cynicism when it comes to international law. You know, it doesn't actually do anything. Um, but I know since taking classes in international law, I think that's definitely not the case. So I appreciate you dispelling that myth here on Global Citizen. So as we wrap up this podcast, we would love to leave our listeners with a piece of advice from you if you could share some wisdom um, for any current or incoming IR students um, just about, you know, research, teaching, writing, anything about being in international relations student um, we would love to leave our listeners with with a piece of advice from you wow that's actually a, a, a harder question than it, than it might seem because I, I know the vast majority of our of our USC IR students are are smart well prepared really engaged doing the work and so in that sense I would just say keep it up but I, I guess going beyond that, the, the, the main piece of advice I would say is, is to become passionate about something. You know, what is, what is going to be your uh, contribution? You know, where is it that you're going to make a difference and, and really throw yourself into it? It's, uh, you know, uh, our colleague um, here has, uh, Steve Lammy, who mo probably most of our students know, uh, has a very nice saying, which he sometimes uh, uses at graduation time, which is uh, fight on for s something worth doing. I, I would, you could put it differently, uh, fight on for something important, fight on for a better world. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the bottom line, I guess, for, for all of us. Yeah, and I think that because we're at USC, which has, you know, so many opportunities for all types of students, you know, you should do your best to take advantage of it because it's not now or never, but it is a good place in your life to really find what your passion is and hopefully develop a lifelong passion for what you want to do. Thank you for being on the show, Professor Sandholz. I had a lot of fun and I hope that our listeners take a lot away today, just as I did. Well, thank you, Cameron and Taya. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and, and congratulations on a great program. Thank you so much, Professor Sandholz. And for everyone listening in, you can check out some additional information on some of the events we discussed here at the Glimpse from the Globe website. We hope you enjoyed this amazing conversation with Professor Sandholz. I know Cameron and I did. Um, and we hope that you stay tuned for our future conversations here on Global Citizen. Thank you.